Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. I'm your host, Jody Scardillo. This week, we sit down with the winner of the Practice Innovation Category Poster Award at the WOCN Next Conference that was held this past June. The poster was entitled, Empowering the Patient, Education and Preparation Prior to Cystectomy Surgery. The poster authors were Juliette Starr, Anne Fitzgerald, Mary Willis, Emily Schlitt, and Matthew Mosinen. Emily Schlitt, BSN, RN, PCC, and CWOCN, has been a registered nurse for over 16 years and is currently a CWOCN at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She received her undergraduate nursing degree from Boston College and completed the WOCN program at Emory University. Emily is a member of Brigham and Women's Happy Committee and serves as a member of their Magnet Council. She has spent the last two years with a focus towards improving education and patient outcomes in the cystectomy population. Matthew Mosinen, MD, MPH, is a urologic oncologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He went to college and medical school at UCLA, followed by a residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. He completed fellowship training at Brigham and Women's and Massachusetts General Hospitals and is now faculty at Brigham and Women's and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. His clinical practice and research focuses in bladder cancer. His work includes creating a prehabilitation program to help patients prepare before cystectomy in order to improve the recovery process. And Mary Willis, MSRNCWOCN, worked at Brigham and Women's Hospital for 24 years, where she was a clinical nurse specialist in ostomy and wound care for the past 14 years. She practiced in both the inpatient hospital and the outpatient stoma clinics. She is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts for both undergraduate and graduate degrees and completed her WOC education at the WebWalk program. Mary is the past president of the New England region. She has presented on numerous ostomy topics, including including peristomal skin conditions and ostomy case studies at various conferences in Massachusetts and for the New England region. Mary has also presented posters at the National WOCN conferences. Thank you all so much for joining me. I'm so excited to hear about this amazing work you're doing. Hi, Jody. First off, I just want to thank you for having us. And we, I know I speak not just for myself, but for everybody else that we're eager to talk about this topic. Besides the people that are present here with us on the podcast today, we have two other authors for the poster too, which is Anne Fitzgerald and Juliet Starr. Juliet, Anne, and myself have all worked as nurses at Brigham Women's Hospital for more than 15 years. And while working together on the urology floor, and this was way back in 2016 together, the three of us identified a need for improved education and support in the cystectomy population. After the need for this quality improvement project was identified, we'd reached out to the urology department and we actually presented a PowerPoint presentation to the urology attendings at that time who connected us with Matt, who is also on this podcast with us, who had been working on the beginnings of a prehabilitation class during this time. This lined up with our vision to build something comprehensive that would make a significant difference in the patient population. And from there, you'll kind of hear 
how we created this class. So we look forward to sharing it with you. I'm excited to hear about it. So tell me, first of all, why did you do this? There must have been some need that you all identified. So let's talk about that. I can answer that. So I'm Matt Mosnan. And again, just echoing what Emily said, thanks for having us and giving us a chance to kind of share some of our experiences. Patients undergoing radical cystectomy face a big operation and a long recovery. And we felt that we could do a better job preparing them. And so by giving them a focused educational session that's interactive, we thought we could prepare them a little bit better for some of the ups and downs that are inevitable after surgery. And who better to really run the class than the nurses that are at the bedside all day long, every minute of the day, and the stoma specialists who are the ones who will walk patients through this major physical and mental change. Great. So how long did it take from when you first envisioned this until you really got ready to have that program implemented? I think it took somewhere around six months, just because I was thinking about doing a prehabilitation program, and I knew that I wanted there to be an educational component. But then fortuitously, a group of stellar nurses wanted to take the reins and help patients prepare. So it was just right time, right place for myself and being able to leverage the experience and enthusiasm of the nurses. So once we kind of went through logistics, like getting a room, making sure all the administrative things were checked off, it took about six months to kind of just get some of these classes started. And then you have an ERAS protocol at your institution from what I read on the poster. So can you talk about how that works at your facility for a patient with bladder cancer? So an an ERAS program is very commonly used now for patients undergoing cystectomy at all major centers that do a high volume of the surgery. It involves a predetermined post-operative regimen for patients, things like early ambulation, minimizing narcotics, encouraging gum chewing. And so by using some of these principles that are intraoperative, postoperative, and of course, preoperative, we try to help facilitate patients during their recovery. And then can you talk about the prehabilitation that you mentioned in the poster? And I saw on the website also that that's an interest of yours, uh, Matt. Prehabilitation is kind of like a preparation program to help patients mentally and physically before surgery. And by helping the brain and body prepare, patients might be able to heal better, especially if the patients are older smokers, just finished chemotherapy, dealing with the stress of a cancer diagnosis. So we try to take the approach that by helping somebody understand what they're about to go through, by encouraging them to eat better, exercise, and anticipate what's coming, it can be a way to help them recover and hopefully not just have a better patient experience, not only just more patient-centered care, but maybe even leave the hospital sooner or be less likely to be readmitted or have fewer complications. That's the ultimate goal for the project. 
And you had a great plan to gather data about this program and you developed a survey and you had pre and post data. So I wondered if you could talk about that and how you implemented it and what kind of questions you asked and that kind of thing. I can take that question. So we had pre and post surveys that were given to patients that attended the class. And then we actually gave surveys to the patients on the day of discharge from the hospital. So we're lucky in the sense at Brigham Women's Hospital that all the patients after a cystectomy go to a certain floor. So we were able to educate the nurses on the floor and really make sure that each patient upon discharge got a survey. And the patients happily filled them out, which was nice. So we had compliance from them. We would even ask just as simple questions as, was the room comfortable? Was the space comfortable? So even that's a post question after the class. Because it does go into looking at this is a large group that's getting together with the patients, the family members. So was there anything that could have been more comfortable for them in that type of setting? Did they feel more knowledgeable after? And a lot of times patients even would say that they had anxiety going into surgery, that they had a different kind of anxiety because they knew more knowledge, but it made them actually think about things differently. So it was a different type of anxiety, but in the way they would explain it, it was almost a better type of anxiety that they now had a little bit more knowledge of going in, but it made it a little bit more real, as they would say. And then one of the biggest questions that we ask upon discharge is, would you attend this class again, if it was an option, and would you recommend the class to someone else? And I think those are the big questions of looking at that even you've now gone through the whole surgery, you've seen what the recovery process is, would you recommend that class to another patient? And we actually had 100%, we've never had someone say they would not recommend the class. Out of all our surveys, we've never had someone say no. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, most of the times they say that class should be mandatory. That's one of those that we've never made it to that point of mandatory, but we have the majority of patients were attending the class prior to COVID. Otherwise, we have a great multidisciplinary approach of the class. And with that, we have some great administrative assistants in the urology department that they're really, I would say, the backbone of helping organize this, whether it's getting the patients to the class, helping set up their appointments, but it's also they helped us with collecting data of the length of patients' hospital stay the readmissions of the patients. So they really helped us collect that data on that side of the work besides the patient surveys. Great. And you gave the class every two weeks. And so how did you operationalize all that? Like how far ahead of the surgery was it generally? How many patients were in a group? Talk to us a little bit about some of that kind of thing. So our goal is that we'd get the patients about one to three weeks before surgery. And that really goes into the look of the prehabilitation. If we can give them a little of the nutrition and the physical therapy education that we'll talk about, that if we can get them a couple weeks before surgery, we run the class every two weeks so that the class isn't too large. But we've had our first class we ever had back in February of 2017, once we got it going, was one patient and we had about seven staff members very eager to teach that one patient. And he was there with his son, but 
he enjoyed the class. He was so excited about all this attention. And so we found it very important to do the every two weeks because we'd have classes even the every two weeks. And once again, the Brigham Women's is a large center for doing these surgeries, but we'd have up to 10 patients in one of those classes in the two week period. And the goal is really to have their family attend or their loved one or a friend that might be helping them after surgery to really get that involvement of their support person that they'll have as well. So to keep it every two weeks, it's really the goal is to keep that class on the smaller side so we can really give that focused attention to them. So then depending on what the person's learning needs were, if they needed a little bit additional, you would have time to do that at that setting then. And I guess that brings in our other part two into the class is we never teach the class by ourselves. So there's always more than one person in the class. And then I know Mary's going to talk shortly as well, who's also on the podcast. We'd always have a woundostomy continence nurse there who would actually do the hands-on ostomy teaching as well. So when I started this class years ago as well, I was actually a floor nurse. And then I recently, as you know, Jody, <laughs> graduated from the Emory program with my woundostomy continence. So I've also taken over that spot of doing the ostomy education. But we found it important that there's always more than one person in the class so that if we have a class of a larger size, there's always people that can disperse and really give the hands-on like one-on-one attention to the patients or if they have questions or we can pause or sometimes one of us might know, be able to answer something that the other one wasn't able to answer. So that was exciting for you to go from the staff nurse role to the WOC nurse role in that same program. Yes. (laughs) It was exciting to kind of grow through that. And it's interesting because I learned so much more in school too, that I was able to really communicate and share with the patients by the end of the class. Yeah. So that was a nice positive for you personally, I bet. Talk to me a little bit about the timeframe of the class. Like how long did it last? And kind of maybe tell me a little bit about how you organized it. You had some hands-on, I know, the poster set and you just mentioned. So tell us about that a little bit you only can hold people's attention for so long. So I think the hands-on portion of it is very important for the patients. The class actually would last usually minimum 90 minutes, which seems like a long time, but at least for us, I feel like it goes by really fast because we actually go over everything to expect before surgery, everything to expect during their surgery, things to expect postoperatively in the hospital, but also things to expect at home complications to look for. And then it goes into the hands-on portion that I know Mary's going to talk a little bit about, but it would be minimum about 90 minutes, but we're talking about our ileal conduit patients, but also our neobladder patients. So if we had a patient that was actually getting a neobladder or attempting for a neobladder surgery, we actually would have a separate, like about a half an hour class after the whole class and do extra hands-on teaching regarding the neobladder patients. And when did you do stoma sighting? Do you do that at that day or how does your program organize that? The stoma site marking happened after the class. So when some of the patients, if they were getting the neobladder, would continue in the class. And then we either do the site marking before the class. So we would arrange several appointments prior to the class and then they'd have the class. And then some people would get their site mark after the class. And so 
we haven't mentioned this yet, but as far as like the privacy concerns, we were able to, if patients and their families did have some questions that were more of a private nature that they didn't want to ask in the class, we had opportunity for them either before the class or after the class during their site marking to address those types of concerns. These patients all mainly have a diagnosis of bladder cancer who are attending the class, although there were a few other diagnoses that you could have, but the majority have bladder cancer. And so one of the concerns would be that we're sharing private information, but really the majority do have the diagnosis of bladder cancer and we're not like sharing their last names. Like we usually just address people by the first name in the class so that they don't feel that their private information is being shared out of the class. And we feel like most of the people they didn't really verbalize any concerns about privacy. I think we were very smooth at giving them an opportunity to ask those questions separately. Like they would come aside and say they had other questions of a more personal nature that they wanted to ask. And then the hands-on practice was something that previously, that we, when we didn't have this class, we would do like a 45-minute pre-op education and stoma site mark together, and they didn't have the hands-on practice. So adding this hands-on practice during the class has really made a huge difference in how well the patients do after surgery. We use a two-piece system in our facility. So we usually prepare a template or a pattern for them postoperatively. So during the class, we would demonstrate how we measured the stoma, how we make the template. Then we would show them how to use the template on the skin barrier. We had all the equipment there. So skin barriers, pouches, we would have a stoma model, stoma paste, skin prep, scissors, so they could practice tracing their template onto their skin barrier and cutting it out, snapping the pouch together. We would talk to them about opening the anti-reflux valve for the stents, and then how to snap the pouch together to the skin barrier, how to use the spout, how to connect and disconnect from the nighttime drainage system. And then you could explain the purpose of the different products and your rationale for using that product. And so we really saw a huge difference for these patients after surgery when you went to visit them in the hospital. And they were really eager and motivated to show you what they learned in the class. Like, oh, I know how to do that. I know what that's for. Where's the pace? And the other thing that has been great is people come to the class and they're anxious, but you could see by the end of the class, they would start to relax. And they would start to chat with each other and almost they start supporting each other during the class. And some of them would then be asking themselves, oh, so when is your surgery? And, oh, maybe I'll see you when I'm in the hospital. And so they started to support each other. And then they would see each other after surgery because the timing of the surgeries would be similar. And so they might end up being roommates in the same room. And so it was, you could really see their anxiety level had gone way down. The other thing about doing the hands-on is you could actually, like some people, maybe they have a dexterity issue or they have a vision problem and you could identify those ahead of time. It wasn't the anesthesia or this or that. You actually could see them in their normal state before surgery. So you knew what their abilities were and you could work with that. I found that really helpful for the patients attending this class. I bet the caregivers too you could see what the caregiver's level of involvement was going to be a little bit. Yeah, and how they could help them. 
I was going to add in to what you were saying, Mary, too, with we could see patients who might have been there alone, but the majority of patients, as I said, attended the class because they were there. What made this class very successful, too, is the class was scheduled the same day as their stoma site marking, the same day as their pre-op appointment. So they had everything in the hospital that day. So it was a long day for them, but they were coming to the hospital anyways. So it really helped get the majority of people to the class. But you could see the people that might live alone or might already, you'll be like, they definitely need physical therapy when they come into the hospital. So those kind of little red flags ahead of time that we were able to put in notes or identify early so that you're not, as Mary said, oh, that might just be a little anesthesia or this, you're actually seeing them ahead of time. At their baseline. I bet that was a huge patient satisfier having that set up that all of that was done in the same day. Because I know that your organization has a huge geographical area and is a big referral from other areas. So people probably travel besides from the greater Boston area. Is that true? I mean, from everywhere. I mean, we have even patients from Bermuda or international patients as well, but mostly New England. But even we get some from your area too. I so know. Because <laughs> you and I have shared some patients. Yes, we way. have. <laughs> and so tell me a little bit about what the physical therapist and the dietitian cover in the class. Being a multidisciplinary approach for the class, we have nutrition and physical therapy. Physical therapy actually gave us quite a few slides that the patients can actually take handouts home with them about exercises to do. And we really review even if they can just walk, that amount of exercise that can also decrease fatigue, decrease anxiety, and just getting that little bit of exercise, but also doing exercises that can build up the strength and stability of even practicing getting in and out of a bed after a major abdominal surgery. We actually review those exercises for the patient in the class. So we demonstrate all of them and how to modify them at home. So it's not they're just flipping through a hand down. They're like, okay. But it's like, if you can't get down on the ground and do bridge exercises, how can we modify those for the patient? So we actually demonstrate them in the class, really enforce that even a, the little bit that they can do ahead of time can make a difference. One patient that we actually had in one of probably one of the first six months that we were doing this came in with two of her children and she came in and was not in great physical health because a lot of these patients are going through chemotherapy. So they're coming in very deconditioned ahead of time. So talking about the nutrition and physical therapy aspect, and we reviewed the physical therapy and nutrition with the patient and her family members. And they actually put her in physical therapy prior to her surgery. And when I saw her postoperatively on day one, she looked better than when she walked into that class. She had a very successful postoperative period she did great, but her family said they focused on her nutrition. She had about three weeks before surgery, and they focused on nutrition, her physical therapy at home, and really built her up prior to surgery. And they were so thankful for the class because they said if they had never gone to the class, they would have never thought how important that could have been in her mom's recovery. And then nutrition really helps with, in the beginning, they would actually come to every class every two weeks. And then we, took over their information from the class and kind of were able to deliver the slides and information that they wanted to share with the patients. They went over diet because you think of a protein 
if you tell a patient you need to build up your protein and we think, okay, protein, eggs, chicken, all that stuff. There's a lot of patients out there that don't know what protein is. You say you just throw out protein, but you're thinking of the healthy fat. So we actually go through that and the importance of building up that protein ahead of time and the kind of the building blocks before surgery and what they can do if they're coming out of chemotherapy and they don't have a great appetite, eating that five to six small meals a day instead and focusing on that hydration. So it's really just having those conversations with the patients of what they could do. And then the goal is too, if these patients need more, we can refer them to a nutritionist beforehand. We can refer them to a physical therapist before surgery. So it really was their physical therapy and nutrition support in building this program and what we could educate the patients ahead of time. So then you're not paying catch-up after surgery for somebody when it could be managed and the person goes into surgery in better shape, it sounds My like. My favorite line of <laughs> cystectomy and prehabilitation classes, everyone knows, is being proactive instead of reactive for everything. Instead of responding to every problem and reacting to the problems is really being proactive. And what can we do ahead of time? What can we do to make these things better to recover? A lot of patients like to say that line to me when I'm <laughs> rounding on them after surgery. <laughs> Sounds like you need a poster or something. <laughs> That's good though, because then they have a proactive attitude maybe too. Well, in the best case scenario, not only proactive for themselves, they're proactive to each other. I had a patient who was recovering and doing well. And that patient went into another patient's room who was having a difficult recovery that couldn't get to the class because of travel issues. And I thought that that was a very nice consequence of the class. This patient felt comfortable going in there and the other patient had actually cheered them up. So even beyond being proactive to themselves, proactive in the sense of a community of patients all going through the same surgery, the same cancer treatment, it was nice to see. It's like the benefits of a support group that you kind of created along with everything else you've created. That's great. So now your length of stay data and your readmission numbers were amazing. It was like a 2.1 decrease in length of stay days and I think 20 something percent decrease in readmission rate. So that's wonderful. So my first question about that is, were you surprised at how good those numbers were? One clarification with that, Jody, is that we were comparing people who attended the class versus people who did not attend the class. It wasn't like before the class comparing to those patients who took the class. So just that little clarification. I don't think we were surprised. I think we were hopeful that it was going to be a benefit to the patients and that it would be a positive outcome. So I don't know. Were you surprised, Matt? I think that it was better than I thought. There is definitely a signal that this helps patients. There's a little bias in these numbers, I think, because the patients that can make it to the class are going to do better. But the patients that can't make it might be the ones that need it the most. And so this was exciting data and also important data because it makes me realize that we have to create something that is sustainable, but also scalable. So if patients can't get to it, it's not going to help. And I do think that the patients that tend to 
go to this class, one thing that sticks out in my mind is if they get readmitted, they tend to be readmitted for anything other than dehydration. Whereas patients that were unable to reach the class, they tended to come in with issues relating to dehydration. And I'm sure there are multiple confounding factors, but I think that the nurses do a wonderful job emphasizing some of the things you have to do at home and even the basics like drink water, have small frequent meals, walk every day. Those things, they make a difference and they all add up. So length of stay in readmissions, we hope, will continue to be positively impacted as we do more and more of these prehab classes. Have you been able to sustain that kind of improvement since you've been doing this? Are you measuring that still between people who can attend and who can't attend? Yes and no. So yes, I'm still measuring it because it's exciting and important, but the class is changing and the nature of the intervention is evolving. We're kind of comparing apples to apples a little bit, but in the same way, we're not. So the newer versions have a little bit different content, a little bit different, hopefully, exercise instructions. And also the way that the information is delivered is a little different. So in the setting of COVID, we've made some adjustments. Now we're doing it on Zoom. And that's great because patients that live far away prefer it. Uh, Patients that are 80 years old don't want to drive in Boston traffic. I don't blame them. So it's easier if they can sit there with their significant other, child, grandchild, friend, somebody that can log in through Zoom. And we've been able to continue to deliver the class, but then the intervention is different. So how do we compare? And I don't know the answer, but we'll present the next poster and you can tell us what you think. Okay. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. With doing the Zoom, we are actually still sending packets home so patients can do the hands-on part. The difference there, so they get the packets at home with all the material they might need. The difference is we're just not there. If they're having issues, we can try to see over Zoom if we're seeing it, but we can't be there as much hands-on to help them. But we are still covering all the same aspects that were covered in the class in person. So we'll have to continue to see and get the feedback from patients in areas we can improve or how we can help in the Zoom. That's been a big change for all of us, I think. So it seems like this model might be able to be applied to other patient populations or surgical specialties. Are you looking at doing that in your organization? And tell me about that a little bit. So before COVID, we actually did have a class that was for ileostomy and colostomy patients. It was a mixed class. And I don't think it's sort of translated quite as well because the patients have different diagnoses. You know, some have inflammatory bowel disease, some have colorectal disease. There may be there because they have fecal incontinence or they have diverticulitis. So, and I think really some people are having a temporary ostomy versus some are having a permanent ostomy, whereas with the bladder cancer patients, they're all having a permanent urostomy. So there's no gray area. It's pretty black and white. Whereas with these other mixed classes, I find that when we were teaching them, we had to do a lot of refocusing, like after the class, when we would be doing their stoma site marking, there was areas that they didn't understand. So I'm not quite sure if 
the mixed class is the best way to do that. I think it would really work better if we could focus like just colorectal patients or inflammatory bowel disease, because a lot of their questions may be related more to their disease and their ostomy. So I have mixed feelings about that. But for a while, that's the way we had to do it because of our staffing. We've increased our staffing from N of two to an N of nine or eight right now. So we're able to do a lot more one-on-one pre-op education for those patients. But I do think it would be a good thing going forward to really sort of focus those classes and try to figure out how you could make that work with those other populations. And also the privacy issue with everyone pretty much in the pre-op cystectomy class has bladder cancer, whereas these other patients have all different diagnoses. And I think they don't want to ask a question maybe because they have a different diagnosis. And so that's a little bit tricky, but we'll see where we go. Would you do anything differently now that you've looked back on everything you've done? Is there anything that you might've done differently now that you know what you know? I think the biggest learning point is it doesn't have to be perfect the first time. It's a learning process. Some things will go well. Some things will need to be corrected. Some things will need to be adapted, but constant improvement is part of it. And everybody is learning together, not just the patients, us, me, myself, I'm always learning. I learn from the patients, I learn from the nurses and vice versa. So I think to get something like this off the ground, just be patient and persistent. And fix the little problems as they come, sounds like. And then does anything different happen in the post-op period? So the patient, you have a good length of stay and then they're discharged home. And then does anything happen postoperatively as far as this program is concerned? Or is it all in the pre-op time frame? My hope is that we can more consistently collect some patient-reported outcomes and extend the clinical interval where we're analyzing them for complications and readmissions. So building up the infrastructure to collect those things is sort of the next step to see, if at all, how far does the benefit go? Do they keep exercising? Do they keep eating well? How is their fitness? I think one of the interesting points to make is that sometimes patients after their surgery, they'll need more chemotherapy or more treatment. And if they're healthy, it's going to be an advantage so that they can tolerate additional treatment. So looking at even that metric might be interesting. So lots of angles to take moving forward. One thing I have thought of, Jody, is we do have an outpatient stoma clinic that I think it would be great if we could see these patients back in clinic sooner. We usually schedule it like four to six weeks after their surgery, I think, but working on their ostomy, ostomy skills and like reinforcing their ERAS education, the dehydration prevention, that it would be great to see them maybe two weeks after surgery and sort of reinforce what we taught before the surgery as far as like avoiding urinary tract infections and what to look for and that kind of thing. A lot of times these patients are already coming in for their removal of their stents about two weeks postoperatively. So if we could coordinate that appointment where they have a quick stoma clinic appointment and we can make sure 
they're doing okay at home managing their ostomy, but also, as Mary said, reinforce those points would be ideal. Sometimes they've forgotten or the visiting nurse hasn't reinforced the use of the nighttime drainage bag. And so then they're at risk for developing an infection. And so really sort of, we know that that is not negotiable. They need to be doing that, but the visiting nurse may not understand that completely. And so they don't reinforce that. So we do see a lot of four to six weeks after surgery, they're coming in and you're asking them, so are you using your nighttime drainage bag? Do you know how to clean it? And they sometimes have stopped doing it. <laughs> they're like, oh no, you must be doing that. <laughs> You get the look, right? <laughs> like, oh. Oh, do I really have to do that? Yes, you really have to do that. Matt, you were trying to say something there. I just wanted to, so two quick things, just that a few of the patients that have gone through the class have offered to talk to other patients before surgery, outside of the class. They might have questions about the conduit or the neobladder, whatever it is relating to surgery. And the class has been a nice way for people to kind of all go through the same experience and then they change it a little bit based on their own individual experience of what they go through. And then I think it's really important to emphasize what a wonderful job Mary, Emily, and the rest of the nurses have done on this project because the bottom line is that it simply would not be done if they did not commit the time and effort. And so this just underscores how important it is to work as a team. And a big thank you to all of the nurses that are helping manage these patients for the bulk of their stay that are at the bedside and dealing with all those little tiny questions that come up. So thank you. Thank you. (laughs) We couldn't have done it without your support as well, Matt. And I think we were talking about it earlier, Matt, Mary, and I, when we were discussing this podcast yesterday and we're are a little biased towards this and how great it is, right? We are love this class and have been excited about it the whole time. But I really think it did so well because we had so much support from all the multidisciplinary teams. So everyone was excited to work on this project. All the attendings were great at getting, the urology attendings were great at getting their patients to the class and like having everything set up in time. So everybody kind of, bought into this (laughs) class and supported it from the beginning. And I think, yes, there's always little things we can work on, but I really think that helped it grow into what it became because we had that positive support from all the different teams. So this has really become your standard of care for a patient with a cystectomy at your facility. It's just sort of done and not really thought about it. Part of it, how you practice, it seems. It's amazing the difference between people who were able to go to the class and how they do and the ones who, for some reason, didn't get to the class. It was sort of like an immediate improvement. Just when you visited them postoperatively, you you noticed the difference right away. Patients call right away to get out of bed because they know they're supposed to be up and walking and moving. (laughs) They'll be like, they told me in class, I got to get up out of bed and move. So the patients are that much more involved in their post-op care too, because they're aware of what is supposed to happen the whole entire time. So you go over that in the class and then they have that expectation after surgery, how their diet's going to go, how many times they're expected to be out of bed, the amount of time they're expected to be out of bed. So they're aware of that. And even if that patient doesn't want to do it, that family member or friend who was in the class is also telling the patient to do that as well. That's great. So are you all going to publish this 
information or what's going on relative to all that? Anything? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> That's the plan. I think Matt has some experience in publishing, so we're going to lean on him a little bit to help us through this. We're going to work on it and it's not going to be perfect, but we're going to put together our first sort of experience so that it can be looked at by other groups. And many groups are already doing this as well. So it can be maybe a way for us to learn from them, but we're trying to put everything together and coming soon. Great. I'll be looking for it. (laughs) So what else is important I didn't ask you about? You had lots of great information for us, but what else is important? One thing we really haven't talked about is we also have an ostomy peer support program, which is struggling right now due to COVID because they can't actually come into the hospital. But we do have a really fantastic woman who is a urostomy patient who she has trained other ostomy patients to come and talk to people who have a new ostomy. So prior to COVID, she would come into the hospital and we had one for colostomies and ileostomies. We had inflammatory bowel, J-pouch. And recently, Matt, I think it's one of your patients, a male patient has expressed an interest. And so he's going to go through the training to be a male visitor for urostomy patients. And we can provide phone calls for those patients now, but not in-person visits as yet due to COVID. But hopefully we can reestablish that program when COVID lightens up. There's nothing like seeing a healthy person that's been through what you're going through. Exactly. So it's really, I think, super, really beneficial to those patients to see another person come in and Our visitors had her ostomy for almost 30 years and has done great. And so I think that's a really positive experience for the patient to see as well. For sure. All right, Emily or Matt, what else? Anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? My final thought on the whole process is to elicit the patient feedback. A lot of the best parts of the class are from the patients. And it's sometimes little things like, I'm not going to come back on a separate day for the class, but by putting it on the day where they must come for the anesthesia visit, suddenly it's very efficient. They're here all day. They get their labs, their scans, anesthesia, and the class. And so it's easier for scheduling because then we always know to have some anesthesia slots open on the day of the class. So I think taking advantage of getting patient feedback will be probably the single most effective way of improving a class locally because every hospital is a little bit different and every setup will be a little bit unique, but it all starts with the patients. So that's probably my most important point for that. Okay, Emily, anything else we didn't touch on? I think we covered most of it, but once again, it is such a patient-centered program. And as Matt said, it's, and that's where you look at our survey questions. And a lot of it is asking the patient's opinion about the class, about how they feel about the environment. And it's really taking cues from the patients. And that's where even every class we teach is a little bit different. You might have to, depending on your audience that you have. So you really kind of change how you might teach that class that day. So it's really being flexible and listening and really listening to the patients and the family that day, because there's different needs at different times. And responding to that at the time. Great. Well, thank you all for spending time with me out of your busy schedules. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see what you do next with all of this. Thanks for having us, Jody. 
Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. <laughs>